We're making our way through the book of First Peter, and uh, we come to this passage. I love this passage. I, I, I'm, I'm cheating today. I'm only going to. I'm really only going to touch on verses four and five because uh, there's so much there. Really, verses four and five is the main point of this whole passage, and the rest serves to support verses four and five. Jesus is better than material wealth. Jesus is better than good health. Jesus is better than relationships. Even the most amazing relationships with the most amazing people. Jesus is better than sexual freedom. Jesus is better than comfort and ease. Jesus is better than all of these things. Now imagine if... Imagine if church was full of people coming, believing that Jesus was better than all of these things. Wouldn't that be amazing? I I want this morning, I, I really want this morning to change the way that you view how we do church. I want to change the way you view how church or what church is. What if church was like a satisfying and amazing meal? And you, and you just knew you were going to come to the table again for this, like, like Thanksgiving at Cindy's. What if, what if coming to church was like you, you, found yourself, you found yourself in this stable place when everything else around you is shaking? But you come to this place, you, we come together, and all of a sudden there's stability in the midst of, of a stormy world and storms of life. What if church was like discovering rare and rich treasures as we come together? I think it should be. No matter what you come out of from this prior week, no matter what you are going into this next week, no matter what storms or what trials you are facing, when we come together, something explosive and glorious and amazing can happen, should happen, is expected to happen. Jesus wants it to happen. Corey Tenboom, uh, she was a Dutch woman who, during World War II, or really leading up to World War II, because she helped to house Jewish people in her home, her, her dad and sister and her, they were all thrown in prison camps. Her dad and sister died in those prison camps. And she struggled for a long time with unforgiveness and bitterness, as many, I'm sure, did as she survived and others didn't in her family. She had this amazing quote. She says, no matter what pitch you find yourself in, the love of Jesus is deeper still. No matter how deep the pit you're in, the love of Jesus is deeper still. Verses four and five show us how amazing Jesus is and the kind of church that he's building. How glorious Jesus is. And the kind of church that he is building. The rest of the verses are just to support this. The first phrase, as you come to him. As you come to him. What comes next? We see first the one we come to. We know that it's Jesus, but we see how Jesus is described by Peter. And second, we see what Jesus 
is building or what we as Christians are becoming. As you come to him, the one that we come to is Jesus, of course, and he is described to us in big and bold and experiential ways. And I think, he's, I think he's described in this way in order to invoke in us more of a visceral response instead of just an intellectual one. Notice it doesn't say, as you think about him, but as you come to him. As you come to him. So the one we come to is Jesus. And then in verse 5, we see that Jesus in the, is in the midst of a building project, and it is spectacular. It's amazing. So let's dig into this. As you come to him, the one you come to is Jesus. And notice how Peter describes him. Notice how Peter describes Jesus. He describes him as satisfying. He describes him as eternally stable. He describes him as one who's rejected by the world. And he describes him as infinitely valuable. Now I'm going to cheat just a bit again. Because my first point, Peter describes him as satisfying, all satisfying. I'm going to go back to verse 3 from last week. Verse 3 from last week talks about if you have tasted that the Lord is good. If you've tasted that the Lord is good. Let me ask you, when you think about Jesus, when you come to him, when you come to worship... Is there a spiritual taste of his goodness? Is there a spiritual taste? Is is there a spiritual hunger that that is being stirred up in you? Oh my goodness, he tastes good. Jesus is to be tasted as good. In a spiritual sense, of course, he's using metaphorical terms here. Like we would taste great food, our spiritual tastes can be richly satisfied in Jesus. When Peter says, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, I can't help but think that Peter's hearkening back to what David said in Psalm 34, when he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Or what David said in Psalm 36. In Psalm 36, David says, speaking about God, and God will give them to taste of the abundance of his house and to drink of the river of his delights. Our relationship with Jesus is to be satisfying like if we were eating a full course, delicious, exquisite meal. Is it? It can be. We're invited into this, right? We're invited into this experience of the Lord. Again, David says in Psalm 63, 5, he talks about being satisfied as with the richest foods. We all love good food, I think. Now, I might differ from you on what I think is good and what you think is good, but we all love good food, and we were made that way. We are sensible creatures, right? We See things that we love and are beautiful. We hear things that are beautiful. We touch things that feel good. We smell good things and we taste good things. When you taste good food, it can even become addicting, can it? I have this little secret. Not many know this, but 
I love Reese's Pieces. I'm not sure when it happened. I think it was when I went to Africa to visit uh, Brian, Brian and, and Mandy. Whoever sent a bunch of Reese's Pieces to them in those big boxes we brought, I ate a bunch of them. And I came back, I think, addicted to them. I mean, I, throughout the summer, I mean, two, three times a week, I'd be stopping at, the, at Casey's to grab a, ba- a, pa- a pack of uh, Reese's Pieces. I love them. When we taste something good, it does something to us. We can even become addicted to good food, or we begin to crave it. And our experience of Jesus can be like that. As Christians, our experience of Jesus should be like that. Right? What's, what's Peter's point from last week? Long for the pure spiritual milk that by, that by it you may grow up into salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Long for something, and you will long for it if you've tasted that he is good. So Jesus is meant to be known and experienced. He's described here as satisfying. But he's also described in this way. He is eternally stable. Listen to what Peter says. As you come to him, a living stone... As you come to him, a living stone. And then later, Peter calls him the cornerstone or the foundation stone. Now, when we come into a house, we don't, this beautiful house, it might be an amazing structure. We don't immediately think, well, I bet the foundation is amazing on this house. I bet it's beautiful. But if the house began to crumble, we had wished that it was uh, built more sturdy, wouldn't we? Jesus is called the foundation stone. In the midst of a world where everything is shaking, where everything is tumultuous around us, Jesus is a foundation stone. I was thinking yesterday, one of my favorite old hymns is, On Christ the solid rock I stand. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but only lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is shifting sand. And when we are not founded on Jesus as our foundation stone, we begin to shift with the shifting sands, and we begin to shake and quiver with all that is shaking around us. Jesus is a living stone. For a building back in those days, the cornerstone was this big, strong, sturdy, stable stone that would brace two corners in the foundation of a structure. And Jesus is called a cornerstone, a living stone. He is eternally stable. More than that, he is absolutely indestructible. Peter describes him as satisfying. He describes Jesus as eternally stable, but, he, but there's more. He describes him as one rejected by men. Now, that, that, for some reason, that just doesn't seem to fit here, but I think if we understand who Peter's talking to, it makes perfect sense why he would say this. Well, it makes perfect sense because Jesus was rejected by men, but Peter's talking to people who are living in the midst of persecution and difficulty, and Peter says he is a living stone, rejected by men. And then then Peter quotes Psalm 118, 
and Isaiah chapter 8 when he says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. When Jesus came into the world, he was largely rejected, wasn't he? In John chapter 1, it says that the word came, became flesh and entered into his creation. He made everything. And yet those that he came to, he came to his own, and they did not receive him. Crowds began to flock to Jesus when they saw miracles of healings or when he would multiply the fish and bread. But what happened in John chapter 6? Jesus had a hard teaching. And what happened to all the people? They left. They all left him. In Isaiah chapter 53, we see that Jesus was not outwardly impressive. In other words, if we had seen Jesus in the flesh, we wouldn't say, that is one cool guy. Man, he is a stud. He is, man, he is awesome. We would not have thought that about him. It says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was and still is rejected by all of the wise in this world, by all of the powerful in this world, by all of the cool in this world. Jesus was and still is rejected. Remember what Paul says? God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. God chose the the things that are not, God chose the weak things to shame the strong. God chose the things that are not to, to shame the things that are. Jesus is rejected in the world. If Jesus walked the earth today, we wouldn't think he was cool. If Jesus was running for president in the United States, he wouldn't be elected. Let me say that again. If Jesus was running for president today, we wouldn't elect him. It's too radical. Too radical. He wouldn't run for president, right? He's king. But if he were, we wouldn't elect him. Remember who Peter's talking to. He's talking to people who are being mistreated because of their commitment to Jesus. He's talking to people under persecution in the Roman Empire, under the rule of Nero, And because of their commitment to Christ, they are being rejected. Worse than that, they're being ostracized. Worse than that, they're being chased down. They're being thrown into prison. They're being put to death. He says, Jesus is a living stone, but rejected by men. So Jesus is described as satisfying, eternally stable, but rejected by men, rejected by this world. Finally, Peter describes him as infinitely valuable. Jesus is infinitely valuable. I love this phrase. I I've probably thought about this phrase more than any other phrase in this passage. He is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. In the sight of God, he was chosen and precious. Jesus 
regardless of what, how you see Jesus and regardless of how the world sees Jesus, in the sight of the Father, he is precious and chosen. The Father sees his Son as infinitely valuable. And we are invited by God to have our eyes open to see him in this way as well. The Father has always delighted in the Son for all eternity. They have been an intimate, loving, admiring relationship. But I think in particular, it is the work of Jesus in being the founder and finisher of our faith that's in view here when it says the Father delights in the Son. In His sight, He is chosen and precious. Here's, here's why this matters. Everything you and I see, we see through a glass dimly now, right? 1 Corinthians 13. Even when we, even when we have... With the eyes of faith, we behold God is great and awesome. The Father sees everything perfectly. And he sees Jesus as chosen and precious. He sees everything with 20-20 vision in ultra-high death. And he sees his son as beautiful and amazing and glorious and precious and awesome. If we don't see him that way, it's not because he isn't, it's because we're blind. And we need to have our eyes opened to see as God sees. And maybe some need to have their eyes open today. Maybe you've never seen Jesus as precious. When I say Jesus is precious, you're like, what are you talking about? He is precious beyond measure. His work on the cross and through his resurrection is precious beyond measure. The father looks at what his son did and says, I love what he's done. That is precious. That is amazing. He is a living stone, the foundation stone. And I love what he's done to be the foundation stone for the church. As we begin to see Christ more and more clearly, we too will see him as precious. We will see him like, like, like a... Oh, I was thinking yesterday about the movie The Hobbit. You guys Hobbit fans? Anyone Hobbit fans here? What was the, the stone that, that uh, Thorin wanted to find? The Arkenstone. Right? When we see Christ more and more clearly, we will see him like the hobbits saw the Arkenstone, or like we would look at this dazzling diamond, this precious thing. We talk often here about the parable in Matthew thirteen forty four. It's the story of this man. He's out in a field. We don't know exactly why he was there, but he was in a field and he's digging around and he finds this treasure in a field. And he is so bedazzled by this treasure. He's like, I must have this treasure, but I know that if I just take this treasure away from this field, I might get in trouble. So I need to buy this field so I can get this treasure. He wanted it so badly. It says, for joy. He left. He sold all that he had. It wasn't a big deal. Cars, houses, didn't matter. He wanted that field where that treasure was. What's the point? Jesus is 
that valuable. Jesus is that glorious, that for joy, for joy, we would give up anything to have more and more of him, to experience more and more of Christ. The song, uh, Be Thou My Vision, I think it might be the last verse. It says, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only are first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Is Christ your treasure? He is infinitely valuable. So what we've seen so far is the glory of Christ, who he is, who this one that we come to, as as you come to him, satisfying, a cornerstone, rejected by the world, but precious beyond measure. As we come to this one, we see that he takes us and begins to put us together with other people into something spectacular. As you come to Jesus, here is what he builds. And it's really, it's just, a, it's a picture of, I don't want to say just, it's a picture of the church. Remember in Matthew 16 when Jesus said to his disciples, I will build my church. Here it says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Here's what it says. You yourselves, like living stones. I want to point something out real quick. He's talking, he's not talking to individuals like, hey, you. I mean, he is talking to individuals, but he's talking to a group of them. This is a corporate issue. You yourselves, like living stones. You can all of a sudden see how dynamic the church becomes when our hearts are full of Christ and our feet are on stable, a stable, immovable foundation and when he is our most prized possession, he, he takes us and we are these living stones that he puts together with other living stones. He's the cornerstone and he begins to build something amazing. When we come to Jesus as precious and satisfying, Here's the picture of the church he builds, and it's made up of three parts. And it gives us we, Old Testament imagery, but it's a spiritual house to become a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up, Right? You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Jesus is building a house, not a physical house, but a spiritual house, and you and I are the raw materials. The whole point of this is that he is building a house where he may dwell, where he comes and dwells. Where he, he doesn't just come and visit, he comes and dwells among us. That was the point of the Old Testament tabernacle and the temple, right? It was a place where God dwelt. God said to Moses, build a tabernacle just as I'm telling you. And set it in the midst of the people and I will dwell there. I will be in their midst. 
Right? They'll gather around the tabernacle. They'll come into the outer courts. The priests will come into the inner courts, the high priests into the Holy of Holies. But the people would gather around the presence of God. God is building, Jesus is building us to be a place where the Spirit of God dwells powerfully. So in the church of Jesus Christ, the presence of God must be preeminent. So he's building a spiritual house, right? He's taking living stones and we're being built up as a spiritual house. Then it says to be a holy priesthood. Did you know that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are part of this priesthood? Did you know that you are a priest if you're a believer in Jesus Christ? To be a holy priesthood. The point here is that we have access to God to draw near to him. If we're a spiritual house where God dwells, here's the amazing thing. We can come into this house, we can come together, and we can corporately draw near to God together. Drawing near to God. We sang earlier about, I want to sit at your feet. I want to drink from the cup of your, at your, in your hand. I want to lay back against you. And I want to feel your heartbeat. Okay, I need to admit, I like that song. But it's kind of like, ooh, this sounds kind of strange. I'm tracking with Jason with what he said this morning concerning that song. But isn't that the point that Jesus has brought us to God? Not just to think different thoughts about God, but actually to draw near to God, to know God, to to come into his presence. We are not merely passive in the church. The building is the spiritual house where God dwells and we draw near to him. And I love what it says, as a holy priesthood. Not just as individual priests, but as a, whole, as a holy priesthood, we draw near to the presence of God. To me, that's the activity of the church. And I want you to see it this way, that we are coming together to draw near to God, this one who's all satisfying, this one that we need for stability in life, this one that is infinitely precious beyond measure. We are drawing near to him together as a holy priesthood. And then, of course, to offer spiritual sacrifices. We don't offer sacrifices to atone for our sin. Jesus has already done that. The atoning altar is the finished work of Jesus Christ. So our sacrifices don't atone for sin. They don't remove God's wrath. They don't earn God's favor. But rather, on the basis of the finished work of Christ, we offer spiritual sacrifices, get this, in order to, be ple- in order to give God pleasure in order to give God pleasure. Uh, just this thought comes to me. Um, Eric Liddell, he was, a, he was an Olympic runner back in the 1920s, I think. I don't know, I'm not sure, 1930s, something like that. He was a sprinter, and he said something interesting. He said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Let me ask you a question. When you sing praises to Christ, when you are praying, when you are encouraging one, these are spiritual sacrifices, when we bring thanksgiving to God, do you feel his pleasure? Is there a sense that God is pleased with this? 
we ought to be a place, we ought to be a people, a holy priesthood that are offering spiritual sacrifices to God that are acceptable to him, that are pleasing to him. Not pleasing because they're perfect, not pleasing because we are perfect, we aren't, but pleasing because Jesus was perfect for us and because God loves our worship. So Jesus is all satisfying. Jesus is eternally stable. Jesus is rejected by the world, and we see that around us. It's not hard to see. But Jesus is infinitely valuable to the Father, and I pray he's valuable to us as well. So when we come to him, as we come to him, Jesus is building a spiritual house building up a spiritual house that we'd be a holy priesthood who draw near to God and offer spiritual sacrifices. Okay, so I come back to that first phrase because it all hinges on the first phrase. As you come to him. As you come to him. As you come to Jesus. I didn't read the sermon, but I, I saw that Spurgeon had a sermon on this verse, on this phrase, on this phrase. If you know anything about Spurgeon, he does big sermons on one word or a phrase. <laughs> and he had, his sermon title was Coming, Always Coming. Coming, Always Coming. It doesn't say as you once came to him or as you once were baptized or as you once were confirmed or as you once did this act. But it says as you come to him. I think the New American Standard Bible says, and coming to him. As you come to him, it's it's this present participle. We could say, as you come and keep coming to him. And so we come and we keep coming. We don't just come on Sundays. We We don't just come at one time 10 years ago or six months ago. We come and we keep coming. Now notice also, it doesn't say as you ponder about him. Now we definitely want our minds engaged, right? But it says as you come to him, personally, by faith, the person of Jesus, as you come to him. If your wife wants you to come in the room with her and sit next to her on the couch, men, you say, you know what? No, I'm I'm sitting in the front room, but I'm thinking about you. That's very different. You might offend her. You probably will. As you come to him by faith, to the person, Jesus, and finally, it does not say as you come to church but as you come to him. Now, I would say, when you come to church, we should together be coming to him. And not to a building, and not to some social gathering of people, but coming to him. If we're going to be a spiritual house, where as a holy priesthood we draw near to God, and we offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ, we must ever and always, day by day, hour by hour, come to Christ. And isn't that what our souls need anyways? 
That old hymn, I need thee every hour, I need thee. Heard that the other day, I'm like, oh my goodness, how true that is for my weak and skittish heart. I need him every hour, every moment. Sometimes I don't think I do, but oh, I do. So come to him. As you come to Christ, like a hungry, homeless man, invited to the most delicious, elegant feast. Come to him to rest secure and stable when everything else seems to be shaking around you. It might be, everything else might be shaking, but we belong to an unshakable kingdom. We have an unshakable foundation in Christ. Come to him to delight in his infinite worth like a treasure hunter who found the most precious jewel. Jesus is our life. He is our life. He is what you long for most deeply. Jesus is what you long for most deeply. Come to him and keep coming to him. Be satisfied. Be thrilled with him. Come to him for for the longing, aching of your soul to find satisfaction in him. Come and keep coming. Don't settle for cheap imitations. A Puritan named John Flavel in his book, The Mystery of Providence, listen to this. This is amazing. You know, the Puritans were not, I mean, they were mystics in a good sense, but they were not flaky out here kind of people. And they, they, had, their, they had their minds in the scriptures. They were sober people. But listen to this. Listen to what he said. Ecstasy and delight are essential to the believer's soul. We were not meant to live without spiritual exhilaration. And the Christian who goes for a long time without the experience of heartwarming will soon find himself tempted to have his emotions satisfied from earthly things and not as he ought from the Spirit of God. The soul is so constituted that it craves fulfillment from things outside itself and will embrace earthly joys for satisfaction when it cannot reach spiritual ones. The believer, listen to this. I want you guys to hear this. I took this as, I took this as a admonition to me. The believer is in spiritual danger if he allows himself to go for any length of time without tasting the love of Christ and savoring the felt comforts of a Savior's presence. When Christ ceases to fill the heart with satisfaction, our souls will go in silent search of other lovers. They will. And it doesn't, need, doesn't take that long before we seek satisfaction and delight in other things. Jesus is meant to be 
all of that for us. Ecstasy, delight, enjoyment, heartwarming, his love filling us. So let's come to him and let's keep coming. John Calvin in his book Institutes said, since such rich store of blessing of all kinds are found in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. From no other. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than sex and he's better than riches and he's better than relationships and he's better than health and he's better He's better than all of it. He's better than entertainment. He's better than all of it. Jesus said in John 7, whoever's thirsty, or if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Are you thirsty today? Do you find yourself dry today, parched today, spiritually thirsty, longing for more? Jesus says, Come to me as we come to him. Jesus said in John 11, or excuse me, Matthew 11, he said, come to me all who labor and are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Are you burdened today? Are you broken? Are you discouraged with temptation and sin? Come to him. Go to him. Revelation twenty two seventeen says, Let him who is thirsty come and drink of the rivers of the water of life without price. Just come. Come and keep coming. Come and keep coming to him. Every hour we need him. Every moment we need him. What does it mean to abide in Christ? It means to remain in him. It means to come to him and remain there and draw all of our life, all that we need from him, all that we long for from him. He is meant to be that and he wants to be that. And so let's come. Let's come this morning to him. Let's pray. As I pray, I just want to encourage you, if you find yourself discouraged, burdened, caught in sin you can't get out of or don't feel like you can get out of, or dry and spiritually parched, that Jesus wants to come by his Holy Spirit to you right now. and satisfy you and set your feet on a solid ground and open up your eyes to see Jesus as better. Better than whatever you're trying to find satisfaction in. Better than whatever sin you think gives you a bit of joy. Better than anything else. Let us drink from this fountain and from no other. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that your Holy Spirit would come. Holy Spirit, 
Jesus, our Savior, our Lord and Savior, said you would come and lead us into all the truth, that you would come. It would be better for us to have you dwelling in us than Jesus walking with us. That when you come and fill us, it's like rivers of living water, satisfying, life-giving rivers of living water flowing from our hearts. And so I pray you'd come now. In Jesus' name, you'd come and satisfy. I pray that you would put in the hearts of everyone here, since our scripture says, as you come to him, to come to you in faith, believing that you've accomplished everything for us to enjoy you forever. And this is the chief end of man, is to glorify you and to enjoy you for the rest of our lives and into eternity. So may it be so. And God, may we be a company of people, a church, where we come together believing, confessing, and pursuing the better that is in Jesus. And go hard after you when we gather together. In Jesus' name I pray. Everyone said, Amen. Amen.